Hello, and welcome to another installment of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Associate Curator Jesse McLeod sits down with Library Research Fellow Sarah Collini to discuss her latest findings on the topic titled Birthing a Nation, Enslaved Women and Midwifery in Early America, 1750-1820. As a friendly reminder, there is still time to register for our upcoming Ford Evening Book Talk featuring Xavier F. Salomon, who will be discussing his new book, Canova's George Washington, on June 4. More information about the event can be found on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. And without further ado, we join Justin McLeod and Sarah Collini in the studio. Well, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So your project looks at enslaved midwives in early America. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me how you landed on that topic? Yes. So... I've always been interested in women's history and sort of the history of medicine. Those are my broad research interests, but actually I had the opportunity to intern at Mount Vernon about five years ago, um, working on the slavery database project in which um, interns and volunteers and um, Staff here went through all of George Washington's documents relating to um, the enslaved people and cataloged them um, into this database so that we could have biographies of these people's lives. Um, And so I was kind of interested in um, women, and I asked um, my supervisor at the time about um, you know, women in health, and she pointed me to this reference about this woman named Kate. Um, she was owned by George Washington, and in 1794, so just as Washington is in his second term as president, there's this letter that he writes to his farm manager, William Pierce. And in the letter, he says, Something like, an application was made to me by Kate at Muddy Hole. Um, she wants to be the granny or the midwife um, for the estate, um, intimating that she's qualified for this purpose as, to, as the other women who I'm paying 12 or 15 pounds a year. Um, so he wants the farm manager to look into this matter and see if Kate is qualified for this um, service. And then Washington says, um, if you're satisfied with her qualifications, commit this business to her. So I thought, wow, that is so fascinating. Here you have this enslaved woman, and she's she's essentially petitioning her owner, who happens to be George Washington, um, to be a, the midwife to take some sort of control over her labor and help her fellow women and their families. Um, and I, that was just very striking to me. Um, I'd never seen anything quite like that before. And so I got more interested in Kate's story and started researching um, other enslaved midwives. And there just wasn't that much out there. There is some on in the 19th century, more so as we get closer um, to the Civil War, but there's really nothing um, in early America. So that's really what got me interested in, in this topic was Kate. 
Yeah, Kate's story is really fascinating. I can say that as someone who worked on the exhibit Mm -hmm. here at Mount Vernon about slavery, which draws on the work that you all did with the database. Hers is one of the most compelling stories. And I think it's really interesting from your project to learn that she wasn't alone in serving as a midwife to her community. Yes. One thing that I think is interesting about your project and the the small amount I've heard you talk about it is that there are kind of two sides to the role that these women played. They were both very active in supporting their communities, but in a way they were also involved in perpetuating the slave system. Can you talk a little bit more about that paradox? Yes. So my project, which is my dissertation, is called Birthing a Nation, and it's really about what you just said, birthing a nation into different but very related ways. So enslaved women who were midwives, they helped other enslaved women birth their children and they supported their families, they sustained them across farms, across plantations. Um, So it's about birthing a nation that way, birthing a community in that sense. But at the same time, because of the economy of the United States um, and, and also in the colonies and late colonial period, Um, every child that was born to an enslaved woman was also enslaved. And so if um, a midwife is helping to bring these children into the world, she's, you know, sort of indirectly expanding the slave system on which, you know, the United States economy is built. And so it's um, also birthing a young United States nation in that way as well. Um, A lot of... You know, the United States was dependent on the plantation system, whether, you know, tobacco and then weed and then cotton. Um, And because um, slavery was racialized and because um, enslaved women were really at the core of that, um, an enslaved midwife's work carried a lot of weight in birthing a child. so that's really, it's about birthing a nation, yes, in those two, those two ways. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So one challenging thing that anybody who's done a research project involving slavery or recapturing the experiences of enslaved people specifically has encountered is the lack of sources, especially those from the perspective of enslaved people. And I'm curious, like with Kate, for example, you know, she pops up in that letter from Washington, and there are a couple other brief mentions of her work as a midwife, but it's very fragmentary. And I'm curious what kind of sources you're using to really pull together these stories of Kate and the other women that you're studying. Yes, that, that's a really great question, and it is something I struggle with <laughs> every time I'm in the archive um, because, you know, we have these great records of Washington and Jefferson and um, Henry Lawrence and South Carolina, all of these sort of founding fathers. Um, and if you want to look more into the lives of enslaved people, it becomes a lot harder. And so what we have, as you said, are, you know, a line in a letter, maybe a mention in a ledger book, um, a mention in a diary. Um, and so it's like looking for a needle in a haystack um, in that sense. But once you start putting it all together, this really fascinating history emerges. But one of the main 
sources that I've been looking at for this project are account books, are ledgers, because being a midwife was a very valuable skill that oftentimes necessitated payment even for enslaved women. So Washington, he paid um, the white midwives at Mount Vernon about 10 shillings, 12 shillings per birth, which was about half a pound. Um, and he also paid some enslaved midwives um, the same rate. Um, and so that's that's the bulk of my source base is going through these plantation ledgers and pulling out um, these women who were paid for this service, which is also very um, paradoxical. Again, as we said, because they're sort of in this liminal space of slave labor, but they're being paid, so it's sort of like wage labor, you know, and that is expanding in, in the earlier public. So um, that is where I'm finding a lot of these women actually are financial documents. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of people don't realize that there were certain ways that enslaved people could earn money through those types of very specialized skills. Um, and to see women especially doing that is is quite remarkable. Um, so one thing that I think a lot of people might be wondering is how did these women learn the skills that they were using as midwives? Because it, they were very valuable skills, as you mentioned. And so how did they acquire them? Yes, that's that's a really that's a really good question. So, um, with the transatlantic slave trade, um, African people and their descendants were physically, but also culturally, dislocated from their families, um, and so rebuilding these knowledge networks um, from generations becomes harder once they're in the American colonies. Um, and so what I've been seeing in, you know, sort of the um, early revolutionary period are enslaved women are, they're navigating the structure of the plantation environment to learn these skills from other white women or um, doctors, um, and then they're building these um, networks of care, and then once they're able to increasingly sustain their own multi-generational families, then you see um, more enslaved women passing down this knowledge to their daughters and their granddaughters. Um, so for example, Kate again, um, we know that she was at Mount Vernon at least in 1750, around the 1750s. Um, I don't know who her mother was. I don't know when she was born, but she, when Washington um, gets Mount Vernon, Kate lives at Muddy Hole Farm, which is one of the five farms. And in the 1760s, the overseer for Muddy Hole Farm is this man named Thomas Bishop. And Thomas Bishop's wife, Susanna Bishop, is a midwife for Mount Vernon. And so she act, Susanna Bishop actually delivers at least four of Kate's children um, in the 1760s and 1770s. And so I think Kate, perhaps because she lived so close to Susanna Bishop, she might have observed her doing this work and, you know, initially learned um, how to be a midwife in that way um, because they lived on that same farm for, you know, 25 years. Um, 
And then another example, which is actually quite striking, is it, it's a little later in the 1790s, but Washington's personal physician is James Craig. He is um, Scottish, but he's he lives in Alexandria in the 1790s. And there's this ledger of him um, making um, servicing enslaved people at Mount Vernon for in, um, when they're sick. And there's references of him um, cutting the tongues of young children, which sounds quite dark, but it means that they're um, remedying tongue tie um, so that um, babies could breastfeed more easily. And so Dr. Craig is paid to do this. And then two years later, there is a reference um, in a ledger to Muddy Hole Kate to buy scissors to cut the tongues of young children. So you have Dr. Craig, the um, male physician, who is performing, it's called a phrenotomy, when you um, remedy tongue tie. Um, and then you see Kate, you know, sort of taking over that role. So I think she also learned these skills from male physicians around her. And he, you know, he had a tr really transatlantic education. So here, here you have this enslaved woman. She's accessing this knowledge, this transatlantic medical knowledge on this really local level at, at Mount Vernon. Um, and then, of course, um, Kate, I think um, one of her first daughters is named Alcee. And she is... Um, she appears in one farm report as helping um, a mother who has recently given birth. So I think Kate passes down her knowledge to her daughter as well. So mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So your mention of Dr. Craig got me thinking about kind of the relationships between midwives and physicians. And I know that in the 19th century and, and through the 20th century, there was this increasing medicalization of childbirth where doctors, um, for certain populations at least, became much more involved. And I'm curious, and this may be a little bit outside of your your time period, but how does the increasing role of physicians in childbirth play out with these enslaved midwives? Do they continue doing the work that they had been doing? Are they pushed aside in favor of physicians? How does that uh, how does that work? So at the turn of the century, um, male doctors are definitely um, imposing on childbirth, which was traditionally the, in the realm of women. Um, Particularly for white women, um, you see them wanting to have a, they're called man midwives, um, in the birthing room. Um, and then, as you said, later in the antebellum period, you see a lot of um, slave owners actually um, drawing up annual contracts with doctors to treat enslaved people, not just um, women who are pregnant, but um, all um, health needs. Um, and there are definitely tensions there with enslaved women who have been um, sort of taking that on since, you know, their 18th, 17th, 18th centuries. Um, but in my work, at least, I'm not, it's, it's a little harder to get at that tension, um, but I'm seeing more of enslaved women are taking advantage of these um, connections and learning these skills um, then more of attention but I'm sure it did exist um, and and there are um, you know some diaries of um, you know planters in Virginia and they'll say you know um, 
Hannah was in labor, and I called in Granny Venus, who was an enslaved woman, to come um, help her. Um, but then it was complicated, so I had you know Dr. Taylor come in, you know things like that. Um, so we know they're definitely called in in extreme situations, but. Um, I think in early in the 18th century, it's mostly the purview of women still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious, what was the most surprising thing that you have found in your research so far? Well, okay. <laughs> so it actually relates to Thomas Jefferson, actually, because um, I've been looking at his um, records too at Monticello, and he actually also had an enslaved woman who was a midwife. Her name was Rachel. And this is um, early 19th century, so um, when he's when Jefferson's retired. So Rachel, um, from 1809 until 1826, right before Jefferson dies, she is the primary midwife for Monticello. And we, I know this because I went through his ledger books, and he'll say things like, paid Rachel for helping... Fanny and Edie and childbirth, you know, $2. Um, so he's paying Rachel $2 per birth. Um, and she actually um, delivers her own grandchild, her first grandchild. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and so for 16 years, um, this enslaved woman, Rachel, she's the midwife for Monticello. She's helping these families, um, the Granger family. Um, I think she does help the Hemings family um, in, in, in childbirth. And... And so I went through the ledgers and I counted up how many um, children she helped bring into the world. And um, it was about 46 children over this period. And so she was paid for all of those babies. So that's about, um, what is it, my math is $92. (laughs) Um, So you have an enslaved woman who's owned by Thomas Jefferson, you know, after the American Revolution, of course, but she's she's making you know a substantial amount of money um, in in this economy that's based on on slavery. Um, you know, almost a hundred dollars. But as as we know, Thomas Jefferson, when he dies, he's in extreme debt, and so his capital assets have to be sold, which includes enslaved people, which includes Rachel, and so I sort of went through um, Monticello's plantation database and some other secondary sources and um, ledgers and realized that Rachel was sold when Jefferson died for $85, which is less than what she had made as a midwife for her tenure as, you know, at at Monticello. Um, And so I think that's a very striking example of even though um, enslaved women, you know, advocated for themselves and they they tried to assert this financial freedom and control over their lives and help these families and these women, these children around them, it, it was never enough to quite overcome the commodification um, of their bodies and of their labor in this, in this slave system. Um, and so I, I think that's been one of the most surprising um, things to find in this. Yeah, that's such a poignant story. So I was wondering, we've talked about Kate, who was 
serving as a midwife at Mount Vernon, Rachel at Monticello. Were there ever enslaved midwives who worked beyond the the confines of their specific plantation? Yes. So actually, um, at Gunston Hall, which is just down the Potomac from Mount Vernon, um, George Mason's plantation, um, there is a woman named Nell, and she is a midwife. Um, I haven't found direct records at Gunston Hall for her delivering um, children there, but I'm sure she did that. And then... Um, there is a ledger for Martin Cockburn of Fairfax County who lived right next to George Mason, and he pays Gunston Nell for delivering enslaved women, delivering enslaved women's children. Um, and then Nell also delivers babies at Mount Vernon. Um, George Washington pays her, I think in 1798, um, to deliver um, children for... Sal at River Farm and, and other women around the Mount Vernon farms. And so here you have this um, woman, Nell, she's building this reputation for herself as a skilled midwife and she's she's building a practice in Fairfax County and you know two of the um, you know plantation owners that she is um, helping happen to be founding fathers. Um, and so enslaved women did um, travel to other plantations to do this work. But at the same time, they're you know, reinforcing economic connections between plantations. So it's always this paradoxical role that they have in doing this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's interesting, you know, even today, you know, childbirth is very arduous and a hugely transformational and challenging time for everybody. And thinking about the 18th century when the risk of maternal and infant mortality was so much higher, and especially for enslaved women, you know, they didn't have the resources that that free people did. So what what kinds of things did enslaved midwives offer these women? What could they do to make that process more comfortable or safer or somehow kind of ease, ease the burden for these women who were having children? Mm -hmm. So one, I think, of the most simple things was just the support um, and the, um, the emotional labor of um, being there is really important. Um, but also you see things um, like providing sugar and alcohol for, you know, sort of early anesthesia to ease the physical pain. Um, you know, you see provisions such as blankets and rags and for the mother and, and newborn child um, and sort of those material items. Um, and I haven't found as many um, direct references in the 18th century, but in the 19th century, enslaved women um, would prepare herbs and remedies and that sort of thing in addition, you know, with the rum and, and, the, al and the sugar um, to ease pain. Um, but it was also time in intensive, so um, it wasn't, the midwife didn't just go and then deliver the child and leave, oftentimes she would stay for a week, you know, and make sure that mother and child were healthy and um, maybe if it was a new mother, 
um, make sure that she had what she needed in that in that confined space, um, but also you know make sure there might have been her mother, or her aunt, or sister also there to help help take care of her in that postpartum um, period. So, so those networks of women were really yes. powerful. Yes. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit from content more to methods. And you mentioned at the beginning how your interest in this topic stemmed from your work on the Mount Vernon slavery database. And I know that you work at George Mason at the Center for History and New Media. And I'm curious how you view digital tools as an important way that we can understand some of this information from the 18th century. That's a that's a great question. So, um, I think you know with the slavery database, why it's so powerful is that when you start to put everything together, you have these um, initial biographies of these people's lives that have been hidden for so long, and we know so much more about um, you know their choices, the choices that were available, the limits, the opportunities, their families. Um, what happened when, you know, if they were freed and, you know, all of these things, they're so much clearer um, once you can turn, you know, a letter or a ledger into, um, you know, a reference to one person and then put all of those references together. Um, and so I'm sort of trying to model that in my work every time I come across um, a woman, I will um, begin to write her biography by pulling all these references together. Um, and then eventually I want to create a um, digital public history site um, so that this information is more easily accessible though with more traditionally scholarly publications. Um, but so I'd love to um, model the slavery database in that way for enslaved women in the 18th century um, to bring to really bring their history forward. That's exciting. I know that a lot of people would be eager to get their hands on a resource like that. So one final question. What happened to Kate? Yes, so Kate was, since she was um, owned by George Washington, and when, uh, in Washington's will, we know he says, um, when Martha dies, um, the people that I enslaved will be free. And so in 1801 or two, um, Kate is free, um, but her husband, Will, was um, enslaved by the Custis family, and so he either ends up he ends up with one of um, Martha's grandchildren. Um, but so Kate is free, but her husband is not. Her children are free, but I, there's, I'm sure, I'm not quite sure where they ended up. After I know she's not at Mount Vernon, but so that um, family separation must have been ex extremely hard. But um, I think I did find her in 
1804, there is a woman named Rosalie Calvert who lives in what is now Hyattsville, Maryland, and she knows um, Martha's grandchildren, granddaughters very well. They're always visiting each other because they're sort of married into each other's families. And um, Rosalie Calvert is writing to her sister when she's pregnant um, about wanting to have a male physician in the birthing room. Um, but when the time comes, she writes her sister, actually, I had hired as a nurse um, an old woman who used to belong to the Washingtons, and I liked her so much that I wanted her to be my midwife. Um, and, and she says something like, she's worth her weight in gold. Um, and I think that is Kate. Um, I think, you know, she is still acting as a midwife even in freedom and, and helping women and the, their families, in this case, um, a, a wealthy white a wealthy white woman. Um, and so that's a very interesting arc to her story. And, um, you know, I don't know when she died. I don't know when she was born. But in between, we, we do know a lot about her life. Yeah, that's such a testament to her, her story and her legacy. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It was a pleasure talking with you, and we've loved having you as a fellow here at the library. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.